Hello and welcome to another episode of Grange TV. We have with us a very special guest, a former Ultimate Fighter alumni. Uh, he's a contracted uh, heavyweight fighter to Bellator. He's undefeated in the Be- in the Bellator heavyweight division. Um, founder of Fight for the Forgotten and do a lot of other humanitarian work as well. Uh, Mr. Justin Wren, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I guess, uh, I don't know, just to begin... Let's start uh, at the beginning. Like, uh, what was high school like? Not even high school, primary school like, like uh, elementary school for you guys. What what was that like for you? Uh, it was hard. It was really hard. Kindergarten, first and second weren't the the worst, but I had a I grew up with a speech therapist from kindergarten to sixth grade, and uh, had a really hard time pronouncing things, had a stutter. It's still, it comes out very, very rarely now, but if I get really tired or exhausted or nervous, um, sometimes it comes back out. Um, but I couldn't say certain words like fish. Um, I would say no matter how hard I tried, it would be fush. Um, no matter what I try my hardest fush, it just come out fush. And so, uh, but I, I was with some nice kids at the school. I transferred schools third to sixth grade or third to eighth grade. It was really tough. I got bullied growing up, um, sat at the lunch table by myself a lot of times. Uh, first day on the playground at a brand new school, I got my first ever fight. How old grade. were you? How old were you? Third grade. So I was eight years old, um, I believe, and seven, eight, and... Uh, I didn't fight. The kid just jumped on my back and started hitting me on the back and uh, back of the head and trying to choke me. And then the teacher pulled him off. And I think from that, he was a, he was a real punk. Like he was arrested later in life for like armed robbery and different stuff. He just had a really rough home life. And I really get it. Um, Bullies. Most of the time it's hurt. People hurt people. It may like nine out of 10, they're just hurting kids. Um, But there's there's a few that one out of ten are maybe uh, almost not a psychopath, but they're just they just don't have a lot of feelings or empathy towards anyone or anything, and it's just all about them, like egomaniac type people. And so uh, I think that kid was one of these, and he really started leading a charge. And anyways, other kids got involved from third to eighth grade, um, got hit in the back of the head with either food or chocolate milk spit wads or or fist as people walked by. Uh, and party. And uh, I remember getting the invitation and it's saying it was a costume contest. Winner was going to get a prize. And the prize was a Dr. Pepper gumball machine. We have a soda here called Dr. Pepper. It's really yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know the soda. Yeah. So, uh, especially in Texas, that's where it originated. And that's oh, where okay. I grew up, is Texas. And there was a, a Dr. Pepper plant in Dublin, Texas. So, about Texas, random fact for you guys out there uh is we have a paris texas we have a italy texas we have a rome we have all these different parts of texas and so there's a dublin and that's where they make the best dr pepper in texas uh, it's made with real cane sugar anyways uh there was dublin dr pepper at this girl's house she had a dublin dr pepper machine and so anyways it was just cool i wanted to really impress her there was a costume contest well, I should have probably gone as Thor, looking like a Viking, but uh, other kids were going as different characters of Avengers. But I knew she loved the Optimus Prime from Transformers. So I decided I would transform with some duct tape, being a kid in the country, my mom helping me. I would make myself into a Dr. Pepper Transformer 
from head to toe. And I named myself Dr. Optimus Pepper. And uh, so I went to the party all dressed up, shield, helmet, chest plate, sword. Uh, my mom said, Michelle's going to love this. And you're in the eighth party. grade, eighth grade. I'm in eighth grade, eighth grade. This was kind of one of the peak uh, moments in my life, you know, really want to impress my middle school crush, you know, catch her eye, pull out all the stops. Um, and since she loves Dr. Pepper, her dad worked there. Uh, they had the Dr. Pepper Dublin, Dr. Pepper machine in their house. It was a Dr. Pepper gumball machine that you were going to win as the prize. Uh, I just went and Mimi opened the door, her grandmother and said, Oh my gosh, Michelle's going to love this. Rumors at school were true. You just push the button. The Dr. Pepper popped right out. You didn't have to pay. Walk into the backyard, sword in one hand and Dr. Pepper in the other. And when I get, you know, met by my peers, the door opens. I get hit with a couple flashes of light. Uh, see fingers pointing, hear the sound of laughter. My eyes, my eyes adjust and see that there's, there's, there's nobody dressed up. It's just me. And that's whenever kind of the devastation sunk in or hit where, Michelle said, I can't believe you thought you were good enough to come to my party. Everyone starts laughing. Tyler, another kid said, you're worthless. And then Justin, the one that uh, organized it all, said, uh, you know, just a ruthless, uh, relentless bully said, uh, you should just kill yourself. And it's it's unique that we're, we're doing this on today um, because uh, today is National Suicide Prevention Day, um, September 10th. Um, it's National Suicide uh, Prevention Month. Um, and I was one of those kids that absolutely uh, contemplated, often um, took on those those things they said about me as my own personal truth. You're not good enough. You're worthless. Maybe you should just kill yourself. That became my own self-talk. I, I have one just on this party thing. I'm fucking... Yeah. When you got there, the did her mom answer the door and... Her grandmother knew that, no, her, her grandmother opened the door, but she did not know that I was going, I was a lamb, she was leading a lamb to the slaughter. No, she just thought. Okay. Cause that would be a whole fucking other level, man. Like oh, I, yeah, I am inside already angry at what happened. Yeah, and then yeah, wait, I think yeah, if, no, I, I uh, ran away from that party and she tried to help my mom find me. Um, but I, uh, I, I didn't know what to do. So, I mean, I felt so ashamed. So made fun of that. I literally ran away and hid behind a dairy queen, like a, a fast food joint uh, that serves burgers and fries and ice cream. And uh, I was behind their dumpster where they threw away all the trash. And um, I was sitting in a corner by the trash can, the dumpster just reeked fast food smell from a week old or however long. And I'm uh, crying I ripped off all the cardboard. I had the duct tape still on my shirt and my pants. And uh, my mom didn't find me until after dark because whenever they closed, that's whenever someone went to throw away the trash. And like, oh, honey, what's going on? Come inside. And uh, I walk inside. I call my mom. Uh, but I this was before cell phones, right before cell phones, really, where kids had them. I didn't have a cell phone until I was 16. And uh you know, I call home, leave a voicemail. She has to, I forget if she went home or if she called and checked the voicemail. But uh, then she found out where I was and came and found me. But I literally ran away from that party. And I was instantly, not instantly, but, you know, I, I was so depressed and shook uh, to my core that 
you know, suicide didn't seem like that. I thought there was something really messed up with me and that no one wanted to be my friend after third grade to eighth grade, five years, basically sitting alone oftentimes or most times at the lunch table. I was just a target. And I think it was just from that first day of school, I didn't stand up for myself. People knew I was a target. They could bully me. They could pick on me. And I didn't know martial arts. Um, and it wasn't until I found martial arts or MMA and wrestling that then I started to develop some sort of self-confidence that then started to transform my life into something positive instead of something negative. What What do you think, not, not that it justifies it in any shape or form, but I'm just curious, what do you think it was that led to your bullying? Like I don't know. I think kids look for someone being, yeah. I mean, kids, kids, I mean, anyone that's different is going to get picked on. I mean, probably a lot of these musicians we all look up to now i think a lot of them were bullied i think lady gaga and some i think even katie perry there's just people out there that are different they're unique now it's celebrated but then uh it was really bad they were maybe ahead of the curve uh no, i'm not saying that about me because i didn't have any style i had a i had a chili bowl haircut until you know after that i uh uh, the where they just put the bowl on your head and cut around in a circle. It's probably the last kid, the last kid in America with that haircut. So I was not a trendsetter. Uh, I was I was chubby. Um, I had a speech problem. I didn't have any confidence. And if someone picked on me, I didn't fight back. I didn't stand up for myself or others. Um, and I think martial arts is what empowered me, educated me on you know, how to defend myself, but how to stand up for others, um, equipped me with the tools to do so, um, the skills set, and just empowered me to, to have some confidence and to like go after what I want in my life and um, to go after what I want. But then also like, you know, after some so real soul searching of going through addiction and depression later in life or at 19 years old, um, you know, at 23, I started a journey, 24 to really, um, you know, help others too. And so it's been a, a, a big journey, but like the step-by-step, step, like I've gotten closer to becoming the man I want to be. It's been slow, but it's been steady. And so I'm grateful for where I am now. I going, cause we will get obviously to, to when, when you were older, going back to your, your folks and that, what, what was your, what were your folks like? What was your relationship with your folks like? Um, my relationship with my mom was really great. It uh, sounds like it. Yeah. She's phenomenal. I, I literally, I'll probably show you on my phone real quick. Uh, she's number one on the favorites, but uh, it says best mom ever. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a mama's boy. We have a healthy relationship. It's not something weird, but uh, she's, she's great. And uh, she's uh, always been the most positive person in my life. One of the most positive people in the room, but like a, like a positive realist though. Like she's, she speaks hard, cold truth to me too. Like tells me, suck it up buttercup. This is going to be tough. Do hard things. Like they make you better. Um, and I dislocated my thumb 13 times my senior year in high school wrestling last year, high school. And, uh, but my goal is to be the national champ. So she'd be like, tape it up and get back out there. <laughs> you know, and my dad would kind of be more of a, uh, she was a two-time state champion in tennis, a uh, national champion in barrel racing, uh, horseback riding. Barrel um, racing? Horse What's barrel yeah. racing? So it's horseback riding, but it's a race on them. And there's three barrels, and you do these loops around them in a triangle. 
Um, and if you knock a barrel over, it adds five seconds to your time. You try to do it in the fastest time possible. I think most people do it in like the like champs like she was like 16, 17, 18 seconds, something like that. But like uh, as a kid, I was doing it like, I don't know, 28, 30, 33 seconds. But those pros like she was, um, you know, she was traveling all over the country at a young age. And uh, even as me being a kid, she was still competing. So she was the competitor that, that, that taught that in me. But I don't know. She felt kind of helpless whenever I was going through what I was going through. You know, she almost died during childbirth and had complications. They told her don't have another one. She had multiple sclerosis, MS. And uh, so um, I was the only child. And then me being the only child, I don't want to be a disappointment to them. You know, kids don't like me. And uh, uh, so I kept it in a lot. I didn't share and open up. It was the moments like that. That and another one at a homecoming that they actually knew about the bullying. Other than that, I was quiet about it. Um, my dad was, was it was weird because he's a creative type. He's a photographer, uh, but sports photography. So I grew up around like the Dallas Cowboys and Dallas Mavericks and Texas Rangers uh, professional teams here in the States because uh, in, in Dallas because uh, he was their official photographer. Um, so I had two parents that, that really, you know, went after things, um, came from nothing and made themselves something, which is pretty cool. Um, but my relationship with my dad was really, uh, tough. He was, uh, he, he got, he got a little too physical, uh, maybe too often. And so that was really tough for me growing up, you know, uh, being picked up by my ears or something like that. I've never really shared that publicly, but, uh, look so I could look him in the eyes, you know, pick me up by my ears. And when you were little, like, like when you were young, when you were real young. Yeah. Yeah, when I was like in elementary school, primary school. So if you like, if he was like saying something to you and you weren't looking at him, he'd grab you by the ears to Yeah, he picked me up off the ground. So my feet were dangling two, three feet off the ground probably. Um and that, I mean there's other instances, I probably won't go into all those, but uh, you know, that was just one one example. Uh but we don't have much of a relationship now. I really want the best for him and I know he wants the best for me. Um and it's just been a tough relationship growing up with. I mean, family, family can be tough. I have a great family. I really do. And my dad's a great guy deep down. Um, he can be the best and, and sometimes the worst. And I'm sure that's all of us. Right. Yeah. 100%. Um, yeah. And went through the hardest times and that's why I'm still here. I mean, I literally was a suicidal kid. Um, I, I didn't want to live at 13 years old and people don't really understand that, but like suicide is skyrocketing here in the United States and all around the world. Um, and it's get, they're getting younger and younger. Uh, my parents photography company that I just talked about, you know, they made a memorial plaque for a mother that my mom knew her child was nine years old and he was told at school, just like I was, you should, you should just kill yourself. And so at nine years old, he learned how to tie a belt and hang himself in his room. And, uh, you know, and there's no reason for it to like go through with that ever. I think it's now I've learned it's one of the most selfish acts in the world. But whenever you're a confused kid and you're depressed and, and you feel like everyone hates you and this life's not worth. Whenever the Twin Towers hit, I was a freshman in high school. Um, the terrorist attack on 9-11, um, on the World Trade Centers. I was, I was 
sitting there and whenever I watched it, like it wasn't instantly I thought of this, but it was so graphic, you know, I'm sitting in class and I watch it happen. Um, and later someone asked, what are you thinking whenever you're suicidal? I mean, I don't know. I just related it to, to that moment. And I'm like, no one, no one wanted to jump out of those buildings. Like they didn't look at that and think that was the best option, but like, or that's a good option, but it was better than staying in the burning building and, and suffering from smoke or fire or flames and, and dying a long, brutal death. And so for me at that time, it made sense, like connecting it to that. You know, this is the quicker, easier way to just get out of the burning building, which in my mind was my mind uh, of depression. And, um, and it was, it was martial arts. It was uh, it w- that saved me. It was uh, incredible coaches, a mom that loves me, but uh, coaches like Kenny Monday, Kendall Cross, two Olympic gold medalist. Kenny's helped a lot of uh, MMA fighters, uh, Johnny Hendricks, uh, I think Alistair Overing some, uh, me since I was 15 years old. Um, he has been a coach in my life for 17 years now, which is pretty wild to think about. Uh, and just having these like father figure types that, that loved me, cared about me, told me to set up goals, become resilient, be ambitious, but at the same time, be compassionate, help people teach, train, share what's been given to you. Um, and so I started going on a martial arts journey at 15 years old. I found the UFC at 13. Um, right after that bullying moment at, at Michelle's house with the Dr. Pepper, um, I uh, was a month or two later at a flea market, which is like a little trader's village where, I don't know, Dallas, Fort where people took a bunch of stolen goods, I think. <laughs> but um, uh, here, here they, I mean, they tried to make it honest, like, oh, it's pawn stuff or it's garage yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. It's like, no, those are car parts. What are you doing? Some of those car stereos. And what, why does it look like you cut it out? Um, anyways, uh, but I went there for a BB gun being a country kid. I just wanted to shoot some rats in the barn. And uh, I, uh, instead, um, I found the UFC, UFC 2 through 9 or 2 through 11. And I fell in love with it. The chess match, like fell in love with it. Like, the judo versus sumo or, you know, boxing versus wrestling or jujitsu versus kickboxing and who's going to win and, uh, and how it's evolved and how it's gotten so incredible. Um, I absolutely love that passionate about it, but I also knew, I knew if I was one of those guys, I could transform into one of them. I wouldn't be the bullied kid at the party that everyone, you know, methodically planned to humiliate. I would be, I don't know, invited to the party. Um, or if I was a champion fighter, maybe like it'd be a party about like, not just me, but everyone who helped me get there, you know, my team, my family, my friends. Um, and I'd be part of something. I wouldn't be excluded. I'd be included. Um, Sorry, just to touch on something because you, you, you mentioned martial arts and you've mentioned wrestling and you mentioned that you participated in it and you mentioned your, brilliant coaches, Kenny Monday and Kendall Cross, who are no joke, like you said, the Olympic gold medalist, but you were, you didn't just wrestle in high school. You wrestled at Bishop Lynch High School, which is a powerhouse in, in Texas, and you were a standout wrestler and you were prep champion and also you won Fargo in Greco-Roman wrestling and gained a scholarship to train for the Olympics. So 
Am, am I correct with, with what I said? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You're yeah. Good, good so, so what what I'm what I'm getting at with people like you you weren't some guy that just wrestled a little bit on the team. Like you you went from that position and you became the best Greco-Roman wrestler in uh, as a junior in in I mean yeah. like as a as a youth yeah. in the United States, which is a big Greco-Roman wrestling country. Um, yeah, I, I then two years and was I think the only guy invited out of high school to the Olympic Training Center. Um, yeah, I was. Yeah, I was about to say uh, that. And then yeah, you yeah, were, you wanted to wrestle yeah. division. Then you wanted to wrestle division one college uh, under Kyle Sanderson, but you got injured. So the credentials yeah. you have for wrestling are not. They're not like oh, this guy. This guy tried wrestling a little bit, which I imagine would have made a few bullies shit their pants afterwards. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> as you got to like year eleven and year twelve, like it would have been people that because because people that do that and bullies and. They're, they're scared at the end of the day themselves. And mm. when you become strong, they all like, did that happen with you? Did people start? Oh, no. I thought that, I thought the transformer thing was cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, uh, so the girl briefly apologized in a Facebook message once the guy, Tyler, that said, you know, you're worthless. He is now like impacting youth at risk youth, which is pretty cool to see. Um, so props to him for changing his life around. And the guy that organized it all is kind of a knucklehead. I think he joined the military and got discharged dishonorably for like pretending to be a fighter pilot. Okay. Explain that. You, how does that work? And, uh, and like, you know, telling people that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think he was a load master. Like he like weighed the planes, but instead he said that he was the fighter pilot and a war hero type stuff and oh, okay. making claims of stuff that he did. And he got in a drunk driving accident or two as well. And so they just kind of got rid of him. But he said, instead of, uh, instead of like apologizing, like maybe Michelle or Tyler did, um, or trying to make things right or, you know, acknowledge it, you know, he was just kind of like what you said. He, uh, he said, oh man, you know, I wouldn't have done what I did if uh, I knew you were going to be able to beat me up later in life. You know, if you're going to be a pro fighter, I probably wouldn't have picked on you so much and uh then he kind of laughed it off and told all his friends that we were we're at a sushi restaurant i just saw him and uh, he brought me over and i didn't want to go and he started trying to introduce me to him wanted me to sit down i said you know i just felt like i was back in middle school again so let me go to the bathroom i i, I went to the bathroom went to the bar i paid my tab and i just instantly left i uh, snuck out of there basically because I, I didn't even want to be around him he was joking about some of my biggest childhood trauma um and uh you know not not owning it not you know not even this brief i mean maybe that was his version of an apology but he was making a joke out of it to me at that time too um some of my biggest pain i guess but yeah the martial arts transformed my life um lots of things have great people um for me personally i don't, I don't really go into it much but like my, my personal faith like lots of stuff has come along and like come together I just said, like, this life's worth living after all, um, after years of thinking that it's not. And uh, I think about it now <laughs> on today, and I don't think I've ever shared this anywhere, but like, if I would have taken my life at 13 years old, or if I would have taken my life at 23 years old, or, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy how it's happened um, 10 years apart, but, you know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now and I wouldn't be able to help people now. And, um, 
you know, this, these logos behind me, Generation Y and Fight for the Forgotten, we've come together. Uh, one of my best friends now, uh, he's kind of like a little brother to me. He started an organization called Generation Y, and he's the founder. He's a spoken word artist, a rapper. Um, he's got this whole hip hop dance team of choreographers that work with the Dallas Cowboys, Oklahoma City Thunder, MTV, BET, those kind of places. And I think they have the most powerful bullying and suicide prevention assembly in the nation. DJ booth, stage, lights, smoke machines, uh, professional dance crew, four powerful speakers. I get to be one of those. And like we had to go in schools and our first time coming together, they're now an initiative of Fight for the Forgotten. And we're going to come out together as Why Fight. Why this is behind me. Generation Y, discover your purpose, your why, um, your passion, and fight. Fight for people. Um, so why do you fight? What cause, what purpose, what passion do you fight for? You know, our first time presenting together, uh, a girl came down and she had just completed her suicide letter the class period before we were there. And like, because we we're there, she decided, you know, to, her life's worth living. Um, so I'm, I'm just like, man, like those moments wouldn't have happened if, if, uh, if I didn't have, um, you know, these, these powerful moments in my life that are like, stop, you've got a life worth living, whether that's my mom, whether that's my faith, whether that's great people that are in my life, the executive director of Fight for the Forgotten and his wife, I mean, just people speaking life into me um, has really transformed me personally and helped me help others. How, how close, and, and I'll, I'm, please yeah. slap me through the camera no, if I'm being, if I'm being, um, if I'm prying too much, yeah. but you know, how close were you to, to suicide? And in those instances, how, how, what pulled you out of it or what saved you? Yeah. Uh, the last time I think, um, not to be weird and get religious on people, but I think it was God that probably saved me. Um, uh, or just I'm supposed to be here. Um, and I can't doubt that anymore. Uh, the first time it might've been luck. Um, I mean, as a kid, I was suicidal, but I didn't actually attempt it. Uh, at 23, I did actually attempt it. And uh, I used all the drugs I could. Um, and it was Oxycontin. It was Xanax. It was like half to three quarters of a bottle of Everclear. It was uh, mushrooms, weed, and cocaine. And I was just trying to end it. I mean, it was everything I had. And there was nothing left. Um, and when I say oxy, I mean, probably like a pill bottle of, of oxy, um, and should have OD'd still woke up at a guy in Summit County cup in the back of my head and give me water. And I literally was, uh, he, he was saying, I got a drink and I've never been so thirsty in my life. And I remember just kind of crushing the water into my mouth and, um, and still being here, you know, but I didn't even recognize the guy didn't know who he was. I guess I'd been on his couch for two weeks um, in Summit County up in Denver hitchhiking. Um, and it was just using his drugs, eating his food, sleeping on his couch. And I had a voicemail from my best friend at the time and he's still a phenomenal dude. And he said, uh, I can't believe you missed my wedding. I can't believe my best man didn't show up. You know, I was eight weeks gone, just uh, on a binge, uh, drug bender. And so there's been a couple moments like that um, in my life. And yeah, the last one was, was wild because uh, I had done even more, more than that. Um, and uh, I had, I, this is my first time ever sharing the story. 
um, like publicly. I've, I've shared it with people plenty, but uh, I was, I took five uh, Oxy 80s. If, if I think the world supply Oxycontin is, um, is five milligrams, 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams for people that have surgery. And 80 is like pretty unheard of, very uncommon. And I had five of those that I took, um, 80 milligrams. So if you compare that to the five milligram pills, how many is that? I mean, just one of them. Um, and so I had five of them. I had like five or six Xanax, two milligrams, which is really strong. Normally they're diagnosed like 0.5s. I had half a bottle of tequila. I had a bunch of cocaine. And I thought it was Molly that I was taking, like a big, big line of crystallized Molly pure MDMA. But everything, the lights were going out and I did it at like noon or 2 p.m., something like that. And I knew that it was kind of the end um, and I was okay with it. Um, but something in me just said I had to take that crystal. It was a red crystal of what I thought was Molly or orange. I'm partially colorblind. And I took that and... Um, uh, an, an addictionologist and doctor says that that stuff literally saved me, kept my heart beating because um, I took that and I thought it was Molly, but it was actually pure red phosphorus crystal meth, I guess, which is the most strong uh, form of it in the world. And um, anyways, that literally kept my heart beating, I guess, because I woke up like 16 hours later. And they said that if I didn't have that, there's no human possibility that I'd still be here. Like with all the drugs that were in my system, that that, that just must have kind of restarted or kept my heart going instead of me just fading away. So um, I, I woke up the next morning. I took it at like noon or 2 p.m. is my best guess. And next morning I woke up at like 6 something. And uh, I walked out and I was on a beach and I looked out and I saw the most gorgeous sunset I've ever seen in my life. And obviously I felt terrible, but some reason I felt like peace at the same time. And it was almost like, I mean, I didn't hear God speak to me and it wasn't like he parted the clouds, but it was the most brilliant sunrise I'd ever seen. And, uh, I woke up right as the sun was breaking the horizon and, uh, the clouds, some, I am partially colorblind, but I've never seen so much color with like blues and pinks and um, oranges and yellows. And, um, and I don't know, just something in my spirit or my heart or my mind just kind of felt like, you know, I'm not done yet, or maybe God's not done with me yet. And that I have a purpose and a reason to be here because I shouldn't have been there. Shouldn't still be here. Um, and so it's just kind of like, I don't know, grace or an opportunity or love, you know, I've, I've been okay at loving others. I've been pretty good at it, um, at times. And, uh, but I've never really been good at loving myself. And that's been the journey I've been on since starting fight for the forgotten is like, yeah, I want to love as many people as I can, but I keep being reminded that I can't love others until I love myself at least fully, um, like I'm supposed to. And so now it's about trying to take care of myself as I take care of others. Oftentimes with, with like a lot of that type of stuff, like we're very hard on ourselves. Like we do something wrong. Like say, for example, sometimes, I don't know, whatever, I'm, I might be short with my wife or, or, you know, say something, whatever. And not only have I been, you know, 
rude in that regard. But then to myself, I'm like, you're such a fucking dickhead. How can you be so rude? You know, you know what I mean? And it doesn't like, it's not, you already, you've already been rude. You know what I mean? Now you have to, you have to be kind to yourself. And I think like, it doesn't mean like you excuse your behavior and then you pat yourself on the head and go, that was, you're a champion for doing that. But it's, it is a hard thing because being unkind to me is not going to make it what I did to somebody else any better. You know what I mean? So it's, 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 it's real, real weird. Did you always have like, so going back as far as you can remember, did you always have like a, a predisposition or a to, towards depression or towards um, suicide, like something that, that. But my yeah. mom doesn't, my mom doesn't think so. Um, because I was a pretty happy kid outside of school. But after that moment at, Like 13 on, yeah, it, it, it hit like a Mack truck. As a kid, I was a happy kid around my parents and around other family members, cousins, stuff like that. But at school, especially after that costume party, like I got wrecked. I mean, it, it devastated me. And that's where I took on those truths of you're worthless. You're not good enough. You should just kill yourself. Same words those three kids said that our executive director and his wife of uh, Fight for the Forgotten, Jim and Susan, they've always tried to remind me when I share this at schools, but hey, you, you can share that story, but make sure you tell yourself and tell those kids like, but now I know that's not true. That's not who I am. Because I think they see that sometimes it brings back almost like PTSD. I've been diagnosed with PTSD from that and stuff that's happened in Congo, um, and some childhood trauma, different things. And um I got to remind myself that like, that's not who I am because that's where my mind goes when I do mess up. Like what you're saying, short with somebody, mine, especially whenever, uh, if I were, were to relapse, I know that's where my mind goes immediately. Uh, you're, you're not good enough. You're worthless. You know, maybe you should just end it because the cycle of addiction is so real that whenever I get stuck in that trap, it's like, there's this mental obsession that I need it. And then when I have it, It'll make me feel better, but I'll use like a gentleman this time. I'll just use, I'll be one and done, you know, one joint, one hit, one drink, and I'll be done. But that's not how an, a real deal alcoholic or addict works. It's like you take it. I take the drug, the drug takes me, or I take the drink, the drink takes me. One's too many and a thousand's not enough. And so um, I can go back to Bishop Lynch, my high school, you know, being there celebrating with the national championship trophy. You know, I'm the first Texan heavyweight to ever do it. I'm the third Texan to ever win it. And uh, and so parents, teachers, uh, or I should just say this kids, and uh, we decide to celebrate and we're drinking out of my national championship trophy, passing it around to everybody. And um, my first time ever drinking, I thought I had 30 shots of vodka. 17 years old, first time I ever drink, 30 shots, except for... The funny part about it, yeah, the next day was everyone was like, oh, we gave you 15 water shots after you had the almost a whole bottle of vodka, you know, the little bottle. That was like from the very first drink. And what that's called in the cycle of addiction is um, it's called the allergy. So an allergy is just an abnormal reaction to a common substance. And so, but you can't tell someone that's allergic to like peanuts hey, or nuts, hey, switch from peanuts to almonds or switch from almonds to cashews or well, I guess cashews aren't really a nut, but um, they, you know, you can't just switch. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, for me, it's like I can't go from drinking to pot or pot to drinking or, you know, to Coke or anything else. It's like I can't have anything because once I have a mind altering substance, it's uh, like 
there's no, there's no limit. Other people will just be high on pot and, you know, they have two or three joints and, and they're high, really, really high. And they don't want to go any higher. And I'm like, you think two or three joints is good. Let's try this whole pound I have, you know, like right now, um, there is no like gauge or limit to it. I just want to use it all. Um, so anyways, I've, I've gotten out of that. And I think what I was going to share with you real quick was the cycle of addiction. You start with that first use, then you go on a spree and, uh, or you have that allergy set off, you go on a spree, then you end with like emerging remorseful. And when I emerge remorseful, I match it with a firm resolution. This is all the cycle of addiction, but that emerging remorseful, I feel so terrible. I feel worthless. I don't feel good enough. I feel suicidal, literally. Um, and then I promise people with that firm resolution, I'm never going to do this again. I promise myself. I promise God. I promise whoever. And if you plug me up to a, uh, a polygraph, called? A, uh, polygraph. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I absolutely pass because I really never, ever, ever want to do it again. And then I, you go to this restless, irritable, and discontented state. Discontent's like I'm thirsty, and discontented is like there's not enough water in the whole world to quench my thirst. Um, and then you start to have this kind of mental obsession about it. Oh, I could, I, that one time I was able to use responsibly, where the you know the hundred cases I have to say I drank a beer and stopped, or I had a glass of wine and stopped, or I had a joint and stopped. But then I have a million cases where where it wasn't that way that I was left suffering or humiliated or something like that. And so, anyways, it's been a a, a real process of like breaking that cycle of like even. Not the, even the middle obsession, but about using the middle obsession about like, you're not good enough. And so one of the things they say in AA or 12 step programs is that like the, when all else fails, you, you know, they want you to be spiritually fit or like, um, you know, working the steps, which is like a foundation of just being a good person um, and like helping others and being good to yourself and uh, knowing that, you know, there's this power greater than you that can help you. Um, in your addiction and, but, uh, they say when all else fails, like help another addict or alcoholic or go out and help someone, help someone that's homeless, help someone that's doing this and that. And I didn't have the recovery program telling me that whenever I started fight for the forgotten at all. But as like, I started to learn about recovery, um, I was like, wow, like this is why, this is one of the reasons why I do this. Like the benefit of helping others, like it actually helps me. And it's this cool cycle of like, through this beautiful cycle instead of this horrific, ugly cycle. What one of the one of the crazy things I find, like I've I've never been like suicidal. I felt really fucking down at times, you know what I mean? But I've never I've never been like that. But one of the things that 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 it does like you can't just kill yourself anyway, though too eh? That's what's crazy. Like people won't jump off a building because they're scared of heights or they won't OD because they're scared of things like and with you it was it was drugs drugs were the weapon of choice so to speak with for for suicide every time no the other time i did uh two times were drugs and one time was like trying with like a noose um and uh so but never really thought about the jumping or the the gun i've never had a gun really um and so uh, it's crazy though, man. Like I, I hate that I've ever been in that place, but now I just want to help others with that. Um, and so, uh, by the way, we office. Sorry, what was that? A space in 
You you broke up. Oh, yeah, I was. Yeah, you, you broke I was gonna up. Let you know that. Yeah, I probably broke up because uh, uh, I think a kid ran in here. We actually had office at an elementary school, a real one, and because uh, we're a bullying and suicide prevention nonprofit in schools, and so we've been gifted this space. Um, and so one of the kids, I think, accidentally came in here, maybe, um, and uh, uh, you might have heard that. Or that's where kind of the disconnect came. Uh, once he opened the door, I don't know, the internet went out. But uh, I love it, man. I love that now my story can help others. I mean, sometimes I reflect on it and it really sucks. It really sucks that, uh, that I've been in such a dark place. But if I can use it, use it as fuel, you know, embrace it, love it, um, instead of hate it and avoid it and complain about it. If I can just decide to use the good, the bad, the ugly, um, to help others, um, not just share the highlight reel, but share, um, you know, some of the devastating times that, that can connect with other people can relate and can show them like it's, it's going to be all right. I, I think, um, when you share stuff like that on, on platforms, well, this platform's not that big. So, but anyways, there will be somebody listening for sure. And it's, I think a lot more people relate to, to the flaws in people and even if they don't won't say it, but people relate to the flaws in, in others and to through everyone's been through the dark times, you know, even if they haven't tried to take their lives or whatever, but everyone's been through. And I think, um, you speaking about it is, is incredibly helpful because man, look, honestly, from the outside, say, for example, I'm looking at you and I'll look at you and I think, fuck, this guy fights in Bellator. He was, Missed the wrestling, you know, in high school. Um, you know, now he's a humanitarian worker. He starts a charity. He's 33 years old. <sighs> you know, this guy, man, this guy's shut up. You know, you've, you've done it all. Now you want to go help people in, in the Congo. Shut up. You know what I mean? But the reality is when you hear the whole story and you're like, no, 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 dude, like this wasn't all plain sailing. Nobody said, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Like this, there's a reason why I'm doing this. Like, and that's the part that people like it resonates with people. You know what I mean? Like the, the flaws and the, it's yeah, the real story, you know what I mean? Like, cause otherwise you, you, you yourself are a very intimidating person in as far as, just how successful you are you know what i mean like you're even if you might not be thinking that about yourself you know because you, you sometimes people don't see that like that but when you when you say what you say i think that's where, where people can relate so much more you know like when when you told that story and everything um for me man i i don't have a like i i've not i've never been addicted to anything but i know one thousand billion percent like i don't touch alcohol my grandparents on both sides where had alcohol issues, you know, um, if I drink coffee, dude, I fucking see the matrix, you know, like that's just coffee, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't touch it. You know what I mean? I don't touch anything, but not because I'm super smart or super anything just cause I know that that's, it's, I don't know. I'm exactly like, like you, like in, in that regard, like I know that when people go, Hey Fab, um, do you want to go play basketball? I don't go and play basketball. I'm there. Like it's the NBA finals. You know what I mean? Like I'm fucking, I will go to a hospital after the, after it, you know, if I have to, like I, I don't muck around. So, um, if I were to start drinking, I wouldn't have 
maybe once or twice I'd have a drink, but I will drink a thousand and lick the inside of the bottle. You know what I mean? And so I just stay away from it. Yeah, that's good. That's good that you know your limits, right? Because that's what happens with an alcoholic or addict in that cycle. We forget like a, a week or a few days or a month. We forget the humiliation, the suffering and the tragedy that happened because we lost control. And so I think those are the two qualifying questions is if you can never quit entirely, you might be an alcoholic or an addict, or if when you use, you lose, uh, you almost always lose control. I mean, um, or you frequently lose control. You're probably an alcoholic or addict. It's really great. It's a, it's a blessing, bro, that you know that about yourself because, uh, like I, it can be like a train wreck where I know don't use, don't use, don't use, don't use. This is going to end badly and do it anyways. And you're like, what the, why in the world? Like in these other areas of my life and see, that's the first step is admitting that you're powerless over alcohol or, or drugs and that uh, your life has become unmanageable. I can say my life is not unmanageable. I have these other areas where I've got things going okay or well, or, you know, needs improvement or whatever. But in this one area, oh man, it's absolutely unmanageable. And if I use, I lose all control. And man, it's uh, I'm powerless over it once once it enters into my system. So, but man, I appreciate you sharing that about. Uh, I think you were saying flaws, right, with your accent. Uh, yeah, yeah, like flaws. Could be flaws, or it could be floors, and yeah. either one they're changeable. Where like sharing your floors, your downtime, you know, your lowest moment yeah. where you're at. The no, floor. no, no. But it was, I mean, flaws as in like, um, you know, like bad, bad features. Flaws. You know what I mean? Yeah. F or yeah. F-L-A-W-S. No, no, I get it. But <laughs> I was thinking about it. And I was like, man, you know what? If my, if my ceiling, if my best times can become other people's floors um, by sharing my flaws, right? Like sharing my downtimes. If, if, if I can also share my best times or my, my flaws for the kids that are coming underneath us, why we do what we do and why we share the messages that we share is because we want our, our best to be their worst on, or like, you know, like they could stand on our shoulders. Yeah, they absolutely. Can, um, and so that's what I was thinking when you said flaws, that sounded like floors. Man, um, be, <laughs> feel free to, to use that as a, as a slogan, yeah. if you like, feel free. <laughs> okay. Um, I will, man. I, I really appreciate this time with you, man. I, I'm not into it. I'm just saying that that I do. I, I really appreciate this time with you. Nah, man. Thank you, man. I'm, I'm, I really appreciate that. Fuck, you even messaged back. So, um, yeah, I, I was I was very happy about it. Well, I I think um, what there's a thing with the the stats in Australia, it's like five or six men. This is just men a week commit suicide in Australia. You know, like it, five or six, five or six men a week take their own lives in Australia. I bet it's more than that, my man, because in the United States alone, it's 22 military veterans or maybe it's 28. It's either 22 or 28 military veterans each and every day in the United States. You are taking their life. Well, I was just reading off the stats here, but I, I think it'd be more too, because there'd be people yeah. probably that it didn't, it didn't register as. Um, a suicide per se, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's true, but it's wild how I mean, even kids, it's uh, 22 a day, 22 vets a day in, in the US, in the United States, yeah, absolutely a day, 
per day, 22 veterans that are going through PTSD that don't really have the support that they need or, um, or haven't sought it out. But, um, yes, we, it's a, it's a mental health epidemic here where our military veterans come back and they're just crushed from seeing their, everyone that they were in their unit with die and they're the lone survivor. So they have survivor's guilt. Why am I around and no one else is? Um, I'm not a good, you know, this person was better than me. That person was better than me. They should be here. I shouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm now an alcoholic and addict. I cheated on my wife. I am not a good dad or whatever that gets in their head. And then they turn to suicide. Um, and but they're not appreciated for their sacrifice. And, you know, they're, uh, you know, they can't get any respect anywhere they go. That's, a, I mean, a lot of people are, but then we got another side that just, uh, I, I mean, I don't really support war, you know, I'm a peaceful guy, but I'm also a fighter and I appreciate who warriors are. Um, but there's people here that just every chance they can talk bad about someone that's been in the military, they do. And it's almost like they're encouraged when they see someone uh, that is military, go over there and, you know, take a, take a leak on that person just because they used to be in the military. So it can be, it can be brutal for those guys. They, they also get honored too, but I think they, they get trashed just as much. Um, and so, but anyways, I guess on that, like suicide with kids skyrocketing. I mean, it is, it is insane. Um, how many kids are taking their lives each and every day. Um, I think it's the number two, uh, Kelsey might be able to help me over here. You remember in young people, like, isn't it the num number two cause of death between ages 10 to 14? I think ages 10 to 14 in the United States, um, it's the number two or three reason is suicide. That's the number, like, second or third leading reason for death between ages 10 to 14 years old is suicide. That and you're like, these are 10 to 14 year olds. When did that, was that, when did that figure become? second or third it's more, it's more recent because of social media they think and other other reasons you know addiction's gone up and depression's gone up and um and knowledge of suicide has gone up and uh did you get it over there yeah, yeah. it's um the second leading cause of death among children and adolescents ages 10 to 24 wow second leading cause of death in adolescents from age 10 to 24 nearly one out of eight six and 12 Near, nearly one out of every eight children ages six through 12 has attempted suicide has oh has thoughts of suicide has thoughts of suicide um and that's the u.s and that's just in the u.s that's incredible you know, but i think a lot of it i mean the kids are just this is where they live now this is their community this is their friendships their friendship is with one electronic device that then has, you know, 20 apps on it. And then people they call friends or followers and they're trying to all be influencers and make an impact, but they have to have their Gucci shoes to do it or be in Abu Dhabi, you know, riding a camel or, you know, in Tulum on the beach or else they're not worth anything. And it's like, I mean, no one's, no, no child is going to be able to do that except for the very, very few one percenters. And uh, so they either try to fake it till they make it and try to impress others or try to whatever it is, they're addicted to their phones, whether it's the social media, the affirmation, the uh, but then bullying is through the roof on it. You know, cyber bullying, talking trash 
people because there's no repercussions of like being, you know, in front of somebody and talking trash to someone and you feeling bad because all of a sudden you see their reaction, how it devastated them. Or you say something and maybe a kid, you know, hits you back or threatens you or you get in trouble by the principal or the teacher or your parents or their parents or their friends or someone. It's just, you can be a keyboard warrior and you can hide behind your phone or your screen and uh, you can say whatever you want. And you can trash people. And I think young, impressionable brains uh, forming minds, um, they're forming these terrible opinions of themselves because they put more weight and what some random anonymous person online says, or the cool person online says, instead of like the trusted, should be trusted people in their, their families, their friendships, their teachers, whatever, like some reason what's said online holds more weight than what's said in person. And I've had to learn that over the last 10 or 15 years, whenever I got off the ultimate fighter, I mean, I went from being just a, a you know, Olympic resident, uh, like training for that, but never having anyone talk trash about me. And I, for MMA, I actually have great fans and people that support me. And it's, it's been, you know, pretty nice, but I've also had terrible things, uh, said about me or, you know, people hoping the worst for me. Um, and, uh, and I've had to be like, you know what is I've had to read it and then have counsel, wise counsel in my life, like friends that care about me. So, you know, does that person, does that was, what that random person says, like, does that really matter? You know, like, who are, who are they? Do you even know them? Will you ever meet them? Or is that just some random anonymous screen name? And it's some, you know, 38-year-old man in his mom or grandma's basement, you know, eating Doritos. And he's just, he gets off by, you know, talking trash about someone. Um, so you have to have the, that, the people that you trust that can that can prop you up in good ways of like words of encouragement, but it can also speak truth to you in the hard times of saying like, Hey, you're getting off the rails here and uh, you need to, you need to get back on track. You know, one of the things that's scarier to me about that cyber bullying is not the anonymous guys that, that or people that are doing that. It's like, you know, that, that party you went to when you were a kid, like, and mm -hmm. you, you went there as Optimus prime, Dr. Pepper person, Yeah, that whole incident would have been filmed nowadays and yeah, put up put up on on the net and then however bad it was for you back then it would be i don't know 20 times worse and that that's something that that um like i'm i'm a, I'm a teacher at um like what would be like a, a college over there but so yeah. we, have, we have classes with high school students and um sometimes like before, because I'm not really working as much there anymore, but when I was working there, I worked there for about 15 years and I'd see, sometimes I'd see stuff like the stuff that kids would say or the stuff that kids would post about each other. And a couple of times, like, I have no time for it, you know what I mean? And I'd, a couple of times I'd get so fucking angry, dude, at the kid and at the kid that's, that's doing the bullying, if you will. And then, like, I realized, like, man, this kid is, he, this kid that's bullying, there's something wrong with this person too. You know what I mean? Like, I was just curious what you do with schools. Like, what is it that you do in schools? Because I have something to add to that in a second. But what do you do in schools? Yeah. Um, well, like what you said, we say, I've said it, and then Generation Y says it, and we say it together. is like hurt people hurt people. Um, and so that's uh, something that, 
we truly believe, um, you know, so we got to love both sides, the bullied victim and the bully and try to, I don't know, love the hell out of him or bless the mess out of him, you know, like whatever junk he's going through, like see if, see if there's a way to encourage him to a better life too and treating people right. Um, but we do, uh, I, I've been in over hundred schools kind of sharing my story and encouraging them, but then generation wise, uh, been in, I think that many or more and, uh, together or they've impacted over a hundred thousand students and assemblies. Um, and like I said, I think it's the most impactful bullying and suicide prevention assembly where we go in, we've got music that's just bumping music. They listen to today. That's on the radio. And it's not something cheesy, uh, where they're going to fall asleep. They come in and all of a sudden they're like, wow, our gym or our, you know, performing arts theater has been transformed into like a show, almost a concert, you know, big speakers, smoke machines, lights, DJ booth, uh, professional, you know, dancers or rappers or spoken word artists that are just really incredibly talented and gifted. Um, and then we break it up with like four songs are kind of on our set list. I think it's four. Um, and they dance. Uh, it's, it's actually more, they're dancing beforehand. Then the show starts, um, high five the kids in the stands where they're sitting down and coming in through the halls. Then a, a, a dance, then a speaker might be a speaker about, uh, you know, I grew up watching my dad OD and be taken to the hospital. He was an addict and alcoholic, you know, or another one that then another dance and someone else comes out and, you know, someone that talks about social media and bullying and it's a awesome girl with, uh, you know, a big, big personality. Um, and, uh, she could be someone that maybe she's gone through it a lot and heard mean, hurtful things. And so the girls and the kids can really connect. Uh, the founder and, and and one of my good friends, like a little brother, he's like sharing his story how he was suicidal himself. Thought about pulling out in front of like oncoming traffic, and then also uh, his his friend did take his own life. And I'm going to be posting a video later today of uh, his spoken word that's about one of his his good friends that, that took his life. I also share my story, um, and so we have these different speakers that make it we break it up and like we get them laughing, dancing, crying. Um, by the end of it, you know, people are hugging, they're learning their own dance move. We have a teacher dance battle, but now we're coming out with curriculums too. We have a bullying prevention curriculum that's offered to all martial arts academies for free. It's called heroes in waiting. I teach it to the instructor so they can teach it to the kids. Um, and it's basically heroes in waiting. So we think character development is bullying prevention you have good character, you're not going to bully anyone. And if you have good character, you're going to stand up for someone that is being bullied. When they have the most power in a bullying scenario where I think it's something like 89% of the time someone stands up and says something, one thing, in the first five to 10 seconds, it stops. You can say, you can say something simple as, hey, that's not kind. That's whenever someone goes from being a bystander to, to being like an upstander um, because Truth is, this is kind of one of those moments where silence really is violence when you're seeing someone be bullied, hearing it, and not do anything about it. You don't know what that kid's going to go do. And um, it's like, man, if you just stand up and say something, one thing, hey, that's not kind, you know, it stops the bullying within the first five, 10 seconds. If you have to do it a second time, it's like 93 or 94% of the time it stops in the first 20 seconds. So it's like we're trying to empower kids um, or anybody 
that see something, like say something, because it takes 20 seconds of courage to maybe change someone's life. Um, so just do the right thing whenever it presents itself. What work do you do? Because I like the, what you said about you, you, you coach the teachers, the the instructors, but I was going to ask you, do you, when you go to the schools, do you do training and work for the teachers? We're, we're putting together hopefully assemblies where we're right now it's just for the students. Um, but the teachers, a lot of them attend and we've been able to have meetings with at least in Oklahoma, um, the governor, the first lady, the, um, the Oklahoma state department of education and also the state board of education, uh, one of those guys that's on the Board of Education is uh, one of our big advocates trying to help us get curriculums in school. And what we're, we've already filmed a, uh, Jordan and the team filmed a online virtual uh, presentation uh, or assembly. <laughs> so kids, even at home, you know, they can watch one of our assemblies. And then we're also trying to, uh, to really get a curriculum up where one maybe is the Generation Y side where it's find your purpose, find your passion. You know why? Because that is that is suicide prevention. If you know your purpose and that you got a good life to live and you're living it passionately, you're going to want to live a great life, and that is suicide prevention. And the fight for the forgotten side, the bullying prevention, um, we want to have in there too. Maybe even one day just casting a vision uh, is maybe substance use disorder or substance abuse prevention um, in schools because that's when it starts, you know, when kids are 12, 13, 14 15 years old, oftentimes. One of the reasons that I'm saying that is because I worked, like I said, I worked in education for a long time. I still work in education. And oh, great. we have, we have, um, you know, I'm sure it's in the US as well, but I think it's today or it was yesterday. Or it's, it's early in the morning here. Um, it was Are You Okay Day, you know? And the, the thing Are that I was going to say was we have, the problem is that I see the, all these things happen and everything, but then I see, the teachers and in offices and all of that stuff, they bully each other and ostracize each other so bad. Like the the teaching's pretty bad for bullying and for clicking and, and all of that. And um, I look at it and I think like you're telling kids, not you, but I'm saying like the teacher will be like, don't bully, don't do this or da 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 da, da. And man, it's it's worse with the teachers, you know what I mean? Um, the teachers are that. Teachers or the students see the teachers doing it to each other or a teacher bullying a kid. I know one of the most hurtful things I had was a teacher that was just terrible to me and others. Terrible uh, to us. And um, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's something that we really could um, do where, uh, yeah, where we, we empower or we have an educational program. We're, we're hopefully getting new offices where we're going to have our own podcast studios. We do have a generation wide podcast that Jordan hosts and I'm going to be on it soon. And uh, I think it's great for anybody, um, but we're going to try to get, we have another student led one where there's a student podcast, like these three amazing students, uh, two guys and a girl. The girl has a really powerful story as well. I'm not sure if she shared it yet, but her, her dad actually, they selected us as their nonprofit of choice. Um, and, uh, for bullying and suicide prevention, and she has a father that that, that took his his own life. Oh man! Uh, and so, just horrific. Um, but she's one of the most special people that that our organization knows, and she supports us, and we support her. Um, and she's on our team board, or kind of like a you know just a student advisory board um, that help us. What's going to connect with students? 
um, as we move forward as an organization. We're going to have to be living here where they're living anyways on uh, the smartphones and smart devices. And so we need to you know, be accessible to everybody on their smartphones or our podcast. Um, so anyways, whenever we get to the new studio, we're going to have uh, an even bigger filming studio. We might be able to film stuff for students, teachers, assemblies, educators, parents, who knows where, where we can take it. But we had a big vision to be one of the, the most impactful resources for students and educators and parents like nationwide. Yeah. I am um, just because. Well, honestly, I think it's fantastic what, you know, what it is that you're doing. I've got a, a friend who's a, who's a psychologist and he, uh, one of the things he said to me, which uh, about bullying was it's not, say, for example, my behavior is the bullying behavior. Like, so say, for example, I try and do it to you, but I can't do it to you. That doesn't mean that I'm not, my behavior is still bullying behavior. It's still just because I couldn't do it to you because you stopped me. Whatever's going on inside me that's making me do that, even if right. I can justify it, it's still there. And that's one of the things, like I said, that I see so badly in, um, with the actual teachers, you know, and, and with professionals or even I see it like in the UFC or whatever. And I think like it's very hard for a kid to differentiate that, um, this is for a show. You yeah. know, it's very hard because that's basically what's occurring. Like the behavior in itself is bullying. It doesn't yeah. matter that, like, I'm not going to name the fighters, but it doesn't matter that fighter A really doesn't give a shit what fighter B is saying because he doesn't care. He's just going, please talk some more so we get more pay-per-views. Right. It's very hard for a 14-year-old kid to differentiate that and for those feelings to, to you know, to, to for those feelings not to come up inside you when you're watching that, if you've been bullied right. or not or, or whatnot. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I won't say fighters' names either, but and I'm fans of pretty much every fighter that's super talented, you know, stuff like that. I have appreciation in my heart for all of them, all the hard work they do. But yeah, there's sometimes that, you know, the low blows can come off as like brutal. And yeah, maybe the other fighter doesn't really care because they're getting paid really well at the end of the day. But whenever you bring in someone's, you know, deeply rooted stuff, whether you're talking about someone's childhood or someone's struggles, or someone's family or their religion or different stuff like that, man, like, uh, you gotta be careful, um, because that's setting an example as a, being role models, uh, with the platform we have. That's what I hope is like just the platform I have, like, even if it's a lot smaller than some of these other guys, like I want it to at least be used for the highest possible good, you know, in every situation, circumstance, relationship, like how can I use my platform to like help people instead of hurt people in the long run? I'm going to say his name wrong because I can, uh, you know, I can Chuck, Chuck Palin, Palinick, the guy that wrote Fight Club. He was, yeah. I was listening to him on a, on Tim Ferriss podcast and he was talking about how real smart dude, both of them. And he was talking about how in Italy back in the day with the fur trade, they were trying everything they could do to stop, uh, furs and whatnot. Um, Whilst it was just the rich people using it, the, the poorer people wanted wanted the sorry, I'm fucking up this an analogy, but the, the poorer people wanted to to wear furs. When they made furs accessible to poorer people, the richer people stopped wanting to wear them. And uh, and then the poor people said, fuck it, we're not gonna wear the furs because there's no one wearing them on on top. And he's saying that a lot of the times when 
when you're trying to change something, um, it's it's other forces like could be economic forces or whatnot that once they changed, people don't want to wear furs anymore, and. I, I see that like with bullying and that kind of behavior, we, we are still at the end of the day rewarding bullying type behavior. Like not even just in the UFC. I look at like sometimes like the people that get selected into middle management are fucking sociopaths, man. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? And we're like, we're rewarding. We're still as a society still rewarding that behavior for, for whatever reason. This is way outside of my area of expertise, but I'm just. No, I think I think what you're saying is powerful because even there's more corporate uh, workplace bullying um, education going on here in the U.S. Uh, it could be something we do. Maybe that's not our main focus because if you stop it early, then you stop it later yeah. in life. But um, maybe it's something we can do every now and then. But what I was going to say with you is it would blow your mind probably to think Dr. Pepper costume party, like let's crush them and make them suicidal. There's actually a guy that is a, a very high profile um, uh, person in the nonprofit world uh, in a very high, the highest position you can be at a nonprofit. And uh, he's running it and it's a really impactful organization. But the way that he methodically uh, cripples people's reputations unfoundedly the way that he runs people off the way he bullies people talks down to him cusses them out like i mean just the way he carries himself is absolutely insane how you said it like a sociopath like he thinks he's the best guy ever but he's literally acts like one of the worst guys ever too and um it's wild to think about like people like that get propped up into the high positions where you're supposed to be caring about people and you're supposed to be impacting and bettering people's lives, whether it's whether it's just a pure for-profit business where you're supposed to take care of your employees, but really they're taking care of the product they produce better than the people that make the product, um, or in the nonprofit world where you're you know destroying people, leaving leaving a body of trails of your employees or donors while you're trying to help these other people that you're just getting a, a checkbox, a number. Um, because, uh, you know, there are a quota that you have to hit instead of like people that you got to take care of. So it's pretty wild, man. Um, I want to, I want to kind of go a completely separate direction because we started sure. talking and we was great and, you know, and everything. I just want to know about the Congo, how, why the logistics of it, how do you deal with, stuff have because if if you want to go man anywhere like that like you have to take about a million shots just to yeah so if you yeah just talk to us about the whole thing the logistics of it how why the funding yeah, um i've got a, a workout here in about 10 15 minutes but um no worries get to, but I'll, I'll let you know that uh i um i yeah started going in 2011 to the congo um, and I came back in like 2013, had a goal of like, I didn't know how to drill wells or get back land or start farms. Like I just thought, man, if, you know, from assessing the need, from going there, from holding a child and burying them, um, uh, from the water, water crisis. And that's happened a few times now. Um, and attended the funeral of more than five kids, uh, that have died of dirty water that are under the age of five years old. Um, it was like, you know what, like, how can we, um, 
you know, make a difference. And I thought it'd be getting 30 acres of land and drilling two water wells. And that that would be life transforming for the pygmy people um, that I knew at least. But man, now it's become over 3,000 acres of land. We just bought 48 new acres of land in Uganda. We expanded from Congo to Uganda and we've drilled 68 water wells. And we have uh, empowered the locals to be able to do it for themselves creating like sustainable businesses inside the country where they meet a need and they do it for very affordable prices. Um, but it provides a job for them to do so instead of having to fly from the U S and drill everyone, or instead of having to get a million dollar drilling rig or half a million dollar drilling rig. It's like, how can we, we make our, you know, we don't need to go punch holes in the ground as quick as possible because we just keep doing that. We lose track of the thousands we've drilled. Well, there's over 300,000 broken water wells in Africa right now, I think, or at least over 250,000. That's billions of wasted charitable dollars because these really big organizations have a huge quota they have to meet and they just have to keep punching new holes in the ground. Well, they don't have a maintenance program. They don't empower the locals. They don't educate the locals. They don't equip the locals. They don't have the tools. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the resources to fix the big expensive wells. And so, but if you go slow and steady and don't treat everyone in every community like it's a cookie cutter blueprint, you know, solution, you can really empower the locals where they, they say something, uh, you know, tongue in cheek. They're like, you, you guys in America, you guys all have watches, but us Africans, we're the ones with the time, you know? Um, and they're like, you guys are always in a rush. Like take your time, enjoy a meal with each other. Like don't just go in and out. Like let's have a conversation. And so the same goes for the work ethic. They work hard, really hard, um, but they also take their time in many ways to make sure they do it right. Um, and they spend time with the people in the community. And so uh, we can go with lesser cost equipment that's locally affordable, sustainable, repairable. Um, and, you know, it takes a little bit longer, but uh, instead of it taking a couple of days, it takes, you know, sometimes a couple of weeks, but um, it's worth it, you know. Also, as soon as you got to go, man, just say, I've got to go. And that's cool. But I'll, I'll just ask you a few more things. Why, why the pygmies? Why, why the Congo? Like how, and, and Uganda? Like why? Like how, what made you go those people in general? Like, cause yeah, like how'd you end up there? Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> it's pretty wild. I'll, I'll go ahead and share it real quick. But, uh, I, I, uh, was 11 months sober. And I was helping at the children's hospital, the rescue mission, the, uh, which was like the homeless shelter. I was helping, uh, at an at-risk youth, uh, like center for like kids that were in gangs and in and out of rehab and out, coming out of juvenile detention centers and stuff. And I just kind of had this, um, I don't know, belief that no act of kindness, no matter how small ever goes wasted. So I started small. It didn't come with a vision to go to Africa. Cause I didn't know who the pygmy people were. I never heard of them. And I didn't know where the Congo was. I, when you said Congo rainforest, I didn't think there was a rainforest in Africa for some reason. I thought it was in the Amazon. And I thought it was in India. And I thought it was like in like Thailand and some Asian countries. But I, I thought Africa was like either desert where Egypt was, or that it was like the Savannah where like, you know, you go on safaris. But um, anyways, I just wanted a, uh purpose. And I felt like I just said a prayer and said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And I said that prayer and then I experimented with psychedelics. I had uh, done a lot of visual 
visualization at with sports psychologists at the um, but this was the most real vision that I'd ever had and I didn't try to conjure it up all of a sudden I said that prayer I was walking on a footpath in the rainforest somewhere and I kept walking and I came into a clearing um, but before the clearing, I heard drumming, then I heard singing. And in the clearing, I met these people that a guy was coughing had his ribs poking out. Um, he was sick, um, hungry, poor, thirsty, oppressed. And I knew that they were enslaved. And the thing that popped in my head was that they were forgotten, that they were the forgotten people. Um, and I came out of this vision, like it was, it was real quick, but it was just, I was flooded with like almost knowledge of their suffering or like these people are hungry, poor, thirsty, they want clean water. You know, they're sick. They call someone master. And I came out of that vision and I literally cried a, a, a little, I don't know, grandma-sized cookie puddle of tears. And I uh, I couldn't, I, I never cried like that in my life uh, that much. And I um, didn't know who these people were, where they were, uh, what they were suffering from, or even if they were real. Um, but three days later, I told a kind of wilding, crazy guy adventurous dude that's friends with bear grills man versus wild guy and he had done some survival training with bear and friends and bear wrote it like a forward to his book and i was like man if there's one guy i could tell that i'm never gonna see again i don't really care if he's crazy but maybe he'd get it is maybe this guy that's gone around the world and like helped people so i told him and he like nodded his head and kind of had a grin on his face and his name's caleb and i go what caleb and he goes uh those are the pygmy people and I said, what? He goes, the people in your vision, they're the, the pygmy people. I was like, who? He said, they're in the Congo. And uh, I was like, where? He goes, I'm supposed to go there in three and a half weeks. But um, uh, the whole team I was taking backed out. The rebel group took over the one million person city and the airport. They control it now. Um, I don't know how I'm going to go. And my wife asked me, it was either that day or three days earlier. Jim and Susan met with him and Caleb was reminiscing, saying, sharing his side of the story. Literally, he was about to back out. And I tell him the story. He goes, look, man, if you feel like you had a vision to go help these people, if you go up, I'll go. And I was like, man, this is wild. So Caleb came with me and another friend named Colin. We went together. They knew the vision. I wrote it down. I shared it with them. And all of a sudden, we're landing on a grass runway, monkeys jumping off, and the villagers just cut the the runway down with machetes and we're walking down a footpath after being on a truck for six hours and on a motorcycle then in a pygmy dugout canoe and going across a river with crocodiles and hippos we're, we're walking down a footpath and hear drumming then singing come into a clearing meet a man with tuberculosis that's like coughing up his lungs um, and the chief pulls us to the side and says hey everyone else calls us the forest people but we call ourselves the forgotten and uh Man, Caleb and Colin were all just grabbing both of my shoulders and saying, this is your vision, bro. And uh, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know at all, but I just felt like if I was, you know, I'm supposed to help these people in some way. And the only promise I gave them was that I could help share their story. And when I got back, I told Joe Rogan uh, about it. And he said, why don't you come on and talk about it, you know? And uh, went back a second time, um, buried a kiddo. That, that wrecked me, changed me, said, we got to do more than just talk about him. We got to help him. Um, Joe, let me share that story again. He's helped me share it eight times. And because of Joe Rogan's support, the MMA community support, last year we had over 3,000 donors from all 50 of the United States, 
from 38 countries. Um, it's been wild to see how, how much this has grown and how many people we've been able to help. Tens of thousands of people get clean water for the first time. 100,000 plus students here stateside. I think millions online, um, at least sharing the story of hope and encouragement. So it's been pretty wild, man. I do probably got to wrap up and get going, but it's, uh, it's wild how it all started from a vision because here's, here's what I know is like, if I wouldn't have said yes to Caleb offering me the opportunity to go with him, like, you know, I don't, I don't, it's scary to think about where I'd be, you know, would I be back in addiction permit? Would I've been there permanently? Um, would I still be alive? Would my heart have stopped? Would I have, or would I just only be a fighter? Or would I have stopped and only, you know, been a, and not, not that any, I don't need to name an occupation, but would I just be doing something that yeah, I don't yeah. care about, yeah. no one else cares about, and that's not helping anybody and not benefiting, you know, would I be living a purpose less life, you know, instead of a purposeful one. So. Um, Justin, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but um, I'd love to have you on again to do like the the Congo part of the of this um, podcast because sure. we didn't get to to delve into it. And I, I'm, you've been so selfless with your time, man. I, I really feel bad for taking up any more of it. No, um, it's okay. I'd love Why to not? organize it to, to do it, to do this part two. I'd, I'd love to do it. Yeah. We'll do it again, and um, we'll also uh, uh, talk about Uganda too because we've really expanded there, and I'm really pumped about what's going on. Man, if uh, you if you're keen, I'm keen. I will organize with your people to to do hey. this part too, man. I, I can't thank you enough. It was uh, unbelievable. Thank you so thank much. You so much. Well, I appreciate your your fans, your platform, everyone that that follows and tunes in to you know this. I'm not just encouraging it to to share my story, although we would really appreciate that you know fight for the forgotten.org that's our website people get him become part of our giving club our monthly giving club it's uh it's our fight club you know you mentioned fight club the movie yeah. ours is fight club and the first rule of fight club you speak about fight club yeah <laughs> so, yeah 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 so you, you, you give once a month or or if anyone can give it all that would be incredible but really man like sharing this podcast out and letting people know that that you exist that that uh that uh this is an awesome show that you're an awesome dude i just encourage your listeners to to, to invite others to listen to, to the show. Uh, you've been doing a great job, so I appreciate you. Thank you, sir. I will get in contact with, with your people to, to do this yeah. next part. Thank you so hey, much, thank Justin. Thank you. Take care, man. Yep. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.